From Dangerous Policy, a channel aimed at intelligent people, we discuss important issues facing life and society. I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And this is our week in review. How are you, Crispin? Marvellous. Marvellous. You know, I think you've got some positive news to share. I don't know. Do I? Oh, okay, fine. I think it's positive news. So Crispin's kind of off keto and... <laughs> oh, right. Well, yeah, so it's, it's kind of strange. Most people on the keto diet say that you go through this little so-called keto flu the first few days as your carbs get out of the body and and uh, and then you feel great and you feel really strong and better whereas for me I, I i go through a bit of a honeymoon period and then i just start feeling progressively worse uh, yeah, there's a part of my body that really needs carbs uh, so I have introduced some carbohydrates back into the diet mm. um, definitely staying off sugar and uh, any kind of like you know fatty sort of foods like pastries and things like that uh, anything that's uh, carbs that is totally unnecessary. So I try and avoid bread and things like that. I, don't, I absolutely find delicious, but still trying to diet. Um, but yeah, off, off keto and trying to, to adjust to something else because it just doesn't work for me personally. And, and maybe that's true for some people out there. Um, but yeah, yeah it, it, look, going on keto is a really good way to kind of radically change your diet. So then you kind of, when you start reintroducing carbs and things like that, you can control exactly how you do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's good. But uh, no, I'm not against it at all. It is highly effective at losing weight. But I am very, very relieved to be eating you know, rice again. Yeah, mm. and we had a coffee and it was great because <laughs> it wasn't, what, an espresso, a double espresso. That's true. Although the, the the other weird thing is when you when you have double espressos enough, yeah, you do develop a taste for it and you do, like you can be a coffee snob even about double espresso. Like they, yeah. you think they all taste the same because when you don't, you're not used to them, they all taste awful. Yeah. Um, but then you realise actually there is quite a radical difference between various baristas. Have you tried like coffee around the world? Because like when I was in America, mm. they just have black coffee there. And I just, I mean, I was in a small country town, so I don't know elsewhere, but like, oh, they have Starbucks too. But yeah, like Australia, we have amazing like Italian coffee. Yes, Australian coffee is um, uh, the best. Uh, in fact, even when I'm in Italy, uh, mm. I compare it, compare it somewhat unfavorably to the, the Australian baristas because I think they've got a better blend and also better ingredients. Um, okay. But that's just my opinion. Uh, but yeah, Australia is the one country in the world, in the developed world, where Starbucks failed. Yeah. So they opened with some great fanfare, like 87 stores or something, Australia-wide, and it was mm. going to be this great thing. And, and Australians went once or twice to Starbucks and were just throwing up in the streets as to how terrible and syrupy and obnoxious mm. it tasted. Uh, and they went into all this research as to why Australia was so unique and why it was that Australians weren't buying Starbucks. And the answer was that they all concluded that Starbucks sells products at a higher price and an inferior quality. Yeah. Uh, and uh, local baristas and, and coffee houses and things like that were just so much better in every way that why would anyone go to Starbucks? There's like one or two places where Starbucks is still successful. I think... Yeah. Uh, it's a novelty. I think like... In Queensland, I think there's a couple Starbucks there. Yeah, exactly. And they don't sell coffees uh, in any volume. It's all like the little frappe kind mm. of, um, you know, yeah. ice things because it's really sunny and hot up there. Those kind of refreshing sort of things are, uh, are still sort of a bit popular, but mostly with foreigners. I mean, that's another reason why it's successful up there is you've got so many tourists, you know, with Sundays and Gold Coast and places like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but within two years, uh, over 90% of the stores that had opened in Australia had closed. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a great triumph um, of people's personal consumer acumen uh, over multinational conglomerate because I always wonder, you know, when you look at McDonald's and you look at these other, you know, fast food chains that sell terrible food, yeah, uh, why it is that, that people who can make the better food themselves uh, let alone buy them in other places, mm. still choose to keep these these stores open. Uh, well, Starbucks is a wonderful counterexample to that where people just went with their uh, quality preference rather than, mm. you know, subjugated to the 
to the multinational corporate machine. So that was yeah. a real, real great thing in it. And, and there's other it. franchises that Australian owned as well that's just been in the community and understands Australian customers when it comes to coffee. Because I think a lot, well, Starbucks originated in America, right? So I guess they had American views and values, and you can't just simply plonk it in Australia because we're not American in the way we drink coffee, especially. Um, well, McDonald's Australia. Uh, learned okay. something special because they had they they went on a whole gourmet menu diet. If you come to McDonald's in Australia, mm. you can buy the Big Macs and the and the quarter pounders and things uh, if you wish. Um, but the majority of sales now are from like these gourmet burgers, which cost more money, but people yeah. are willing to pay. And uh, and McDonald's has tried to rebrand itself as sort of a quality um, food provider, even though it's very hard to kind of imagine. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're in the United States, um, by comparison, relative to the population per capita, McDonald's in the United States is failing because it's unable to to move with consumer trends in the mm. same way. Uh, so it's interesting how like these fast food chains like kind of adapt and change depending on the culture like a lot of them you know go singapore or asian countries have rice <laughs> with the meals and i love that <laughs> or, or the thai prosperity burgers you can get at mcdonald's yeah. um, <laughs> oh it's so good okay make me hungry i'm gonna stop talking about food um this week has been kind of interesting mm -hmm. right finally part two lithuania history yeah yeah, yeah. long We're time coming and it was interesting, like, just to hear about, um, yeah, the different, I forgot what it's called when you go into... Crusades. Crusades. Yeah, I'm like, invasion <laughs> in my head. But yeah, it was interesting yeah, to tell you about the Crusades. And look, in summary, when I watched the video, I was kind of like, Lithuanians are amazing. <laughs> They're so strong and persistent and then, like, you know, keep their culture alive for 100 years of fighting, like, well, it's it's hard to articulate this, right? Because imagine being in a world where the entire world is foreign and still maintaining your independence. Mm. So um, by this stage, everybody else that you would know of, right? All of the people with whom you interact anywhere in the world, anywhere across the whole amber trade yeah. is Christian. Yeah. Uh, and you yourself... Uh, are a religion that everyone sees as you going to hell, that you're a, you're a heathen, uh, and thus to gain recognition and mm -hmm. to preserve your independence uh, and sovereignty for such a long period of time in the face of global opposition is a enormous triumph and a real testament to the origins of the Lithuanian character. Uh, and it's one of the things that I find really under-researched, under, you know, not very well known, even within Lithuania itself. Like if you go to the, the National Museum in Vilnius, yeah. um, most of the, the treasures, the displays, they, they're from the kind of Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth onward. Now, this is a critical part of their history and it's understandable because you get all these sort of rich um, uh, sort of artifacts and things from that period. But the pagan Lithuania past is what I think of as being the most uniquely Lithuanian. Like if you were to go, okay, what are the distinct things about Lithuania, of which there are many, it's the language, oldest still spoken language in all of Europe. It's the amber kind of trade, the history, the, yeah. the, um, uh, its connection with its mythology. And then the pagan Lithuanian history. So we'll do a whole video on pagan Lithuania at the end of all this. So it has a religion. Yes. Sort of yeah. like, and they had their own gods. That's pagan. right. They had their own gods, their own uh, religious festivals. Uh, we have a revival of pagan Lithuanian tradition in yeah. the form of the Remuva. I think it's R-O-M-U-V-A. Mm -hmm. uh, they are of the fastest growing, I think, um, new religious group within Lithuania, and they have their own festivals and things um, being reintroduced in, yeah. this, in this new world. So. Uh, when we visit Lithuania, ultimately we'll um, we'll go visit the remover and perhaps do a, a special episode on that. Uh, that would be really really interesting. What I didn't understand in the video, right, was there's all like different tribes in Lithuania, mm -hmm. and then they had for each tribe with their kings. I'm I'm confused, like how they separated and came together. Okay, so the the various Baltic tribes um, ha were kind of separated mostly by dialect, right? So you'd have 
languages, language groups that were very similar, but they would have their own kind of nuances, notably different. So they mm. could generally understand one another when they spoke with one another, but they had, um, you know, sufficient linguistic separation yeah. that uh, they were clearly distinct peoples, right? And uh, and it wasn't until sort of the 19th century, so we're skipping ahead in the history here, but it wasn't until the 1800s where they uh, created a single Lithuanian alphabet, um, okay. which uh, despite, uh, I think it was despite the Poles, uh, they made it a Czech alphabet, another kind of story. Uh, and the... Uh, and then the translators um, in the, the in Germany who translated all these books into Lithuanian to help preserve the language, and then particularly during the period of the Soviet occupation where the people tried to suppress the language. Yeah. Uh, there's a long story about that, so we'll, we'll definitely cover that in the future history episodes. Um, but uh, that kind of created a standard Lithuanian dialect uh, because of the written language and the way it was taught. Uh, and yeah, Prussian... Uh, was a similar language, but that the last native Prussian speaker sort of mm. died out in the late 1700s. Mm. Um, so Lithuanian is probably the most uh, uniquely Baltic tribic language that is still preserved today. Mm-hmm. There are different um, tribes that existed. Some of them self-identify uh, as these tribal groups to this day. So okay. in the Lithuanian census, I think a couple of thousand people are registered as Semigalian, Mm-hmm. Um, and all within a particular region of Lithuania. So, so there is like an awareness at a very local level of different sort of tribal ethnic um, yeah. ties that still exist. Uh, but certainly uh, Lithuania was the most successful of all of the Baltic tribes because uh, Prussia was completely subjugated. Yeah. Uh, the um, Samotians and things, the Koronians, they were right on the frontiers of the crusading armies. Mm. Uh, you had um, some of the eastern tribes converting to orthodoxy. Yeah. So uh, what you would have is Lithuania as being the strongest, most centralised group of tribal identity. Mm. And then you often had refugees from the Crusades. Um, yeah. So Baltic tribes who wanted to go and link up with a more powerful tribe. Yeah. Um, waves of those people kind of becoming part of the broader Lithuanian tribe. So the Lithuanian tribe actually kind of grew a bit during this period, not because they just conquered territory and were super powerful, but because other tribes kind of got absorbed into that larger group. Yeah, that's interesting. This might sound like a huge question, but the whole point of the crusade was to line and conquer. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, the the Northern Crusades were a bit uh, complicated in the sense. So like, in Jerusalem, where it all started, it was about liberating the Holy Land from yeah. so pilgrims could go in and go to the uh, Church of the Anastasia, the Holy Sepulchre, the Golgotha, and things like that, which that had been blocked uh, by by Muslimic uh, leadership and occupation. Um, and of course, in the context of going and doing a lot of bloody fighting, uh, and you know, you've got people in their bloodlust and, uh, and men-at-arms, uh, you, you, it turns into something else, you know, political ambition, um, succession, mm. expansion of power, fiefdoms, and, and all of those stories are rife throughout the whole Crusades on, on all sides of the conflicts. Uh, in Spain, you had the, the Reconquista uh, because you had the whole peninsula divided between uh, uh, Moorish Andalus and, mm. and the you know, Castilians. Uh, and that conflict obviously took on a crusading Christian versus Islamic feel. Yeah. Um, but in the Northern Crusades, it, you could argue that it was more about straight power because it was a very long way to go to the Holy Land mm. uh, and the popes uh, started to be convinced of the merits, particularly Gregory IX, of uh, expanding Christendom wherever you are. Right, yeah. so it's not just about going and liberating the Holy Land. You've got to do it in Spain. You've got to do it in the Northern Baltic, and uh, the Teutonic Order, being a Germanic order, obviously very closely tied to Germanic princes and dukes and things. Mm-hmm. While uh, the Prussian territories were very close to to Germany, uh, and the Teutonics originally had a good alliance with the, the Poles, um, and so it was about you know protecting 
uh, northern kind of uh, Christian states from mm. Baltic incursions, because of course the Baltic tribes would go and raid and they would loot and pillage and take things back to, to things. So they wanted to create a Teutonic buffer state mm. between themselves and the Baltic tribes. And then because the Teutonic order became incredibly powerful and very, very rich, they began to expand even beyond what had originally been anticipated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a military conquest. But we have to understand that most, like when people talk about the, the, the spread of Christianity through Europe, the Northern Crusades is more an exception rather than the rule. Most uh, Christian countries converted, or Christian kingdoms, um, converted to Christianity from paganism by choice. And they did so for a very important reason, uh, legitimacy of the ruler mm. and bureaucracy. If you are a pagan Viking king, right, you're often uh, in charge because you're considered a great Viking because if you've got good blood ties uh, and you are strong enough to keep everything together, okay? Yeah. Well, what Christianity offered was divine right. They say, okay, why are you the king of, uh, of Norway? Well, mm -hmm. it's because you are a, um, a God's anointed on earth. Your God's uh, chosen for that role. And therefore, all of your Christian subjects owe you allegiance because to offend you, to go as a crime against you, you're, they're committing a crime against God. God has set the social structure the way it is. Yeah. If God wants you to be a peasant, then be a good peasant. Uh, if God wants you to be a bishop, then be a good bishop. Yeah. If God wants you to be a king, then be a good Christian king. So as long as you're in good standing with the papacy uh, and you're a, a good Christian ruler, then uh, your subjects owe you that allegiance. And that is a very powerful weapon uh, for, for kings and monarchs to maintain their rule. If, if people think that if they rise up against you, they're going to hell, yeah. um, most of them will end up doing as they're told. So that's a very useful thing. The second thing that um, was incredibly useful for, for uh, Christian kings was a tax-based uh, bureaucracy. Um, the vast majority of people in the Middle Ages could not read and write. It was mm -hmm. a very special skill. One group of people that could do that was the ecclesiastics and the priesthood. So what you would have is a whole wave of priests with a strong hierarchy, a very good system of, of organizational ability, and they were able to do a lot of the administrative tasks that you couldn't get anyone else to do. They could record land you know, values and taxations and and distributions and ownerships and they could get involved in legal cases and they could organize all of this bureaucracy that you needed in order to run your kingdom. Mm. Um, if you rely just on your pagan warriors to do that, it was very, very difficult. Uh, you didn't have that administrative um, uh, ability. It's just because they didn't have that structure. Yeah, they just didn't have the literacy. Like, oh, I mean, okay. remember, as I said, Lithuania didn't have a written language until the 19th century. It relied yeah. on, on Polish. It relied on other things. Uh, and they tell stories? They just, I mean, yeah. Yeah, the oral traditions um, passed down through the generations. And that's one of the great things about um, Lithuania that they managed to preserve that for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, but so there was a lot of attractive benefits to being a Christian ruler. Yeah. And the way it would usually happen is you would have a uh, the king or the queen or, or whoever in charge would convert and be mm -hmm. baptized. And then as a consequence of that, they would say, look, if you baptize to Christianity and swear allegiance to me, I'll give you exemptions from taxation and stuff. And so all the nobles would jump on board yeah. and all the way down to the peasantry. But then he backflipped, he said. Oh, uh, King Mendugus uh, backflipped because his nobles rejected Christianity and refused to convert. So it was one of those rare instances where uh, Mindagos converted to Christianity yeah. for political reasons. He, um, uh, the Teutonic Order at that time was particularly strong and he didn't want any more incursions from the Teutonic Order into his Lithuanian lands. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and the Teutonic Order respected that conversion. They, they ceased um, invading Lithuania and they went and fought other tribes instead. Uh, until such time as Mindagos, you know, went back to his pagan ways, in which case the war resumed. Um, oh, so, yeah, he did it for political reasons, but was unable to bring his own people with him. And as a consequence of that, uh, if he hadn't gone back to paganism, um, he would have been overthrown even even sooner than he was. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a fraught decision, right? Like if you have a, a nation of people that are particularly proud of their traditions and their legacy and their history... 
converting uh, to another faith is incredibly dangerous. You make enemies of all the people that yeah. were committed to the previous religion and, and all the people that benefited under the previous system. Uh, so that's a, yeah, it's an interesting period of history. Uh, in the end, uh, the conversion happened pretty peaceably mm-hmm. um, because uh, of the unification between uh, Lithuania and Poland, which which we'll get to in the next episode. So in the future episodes, mm-hmm. so we've done two so far. We did the ancient uh, Alski tribes, the, the Amber Road. Yeah. We've done the pagan Lithuania, the emergence of the kingdom of Lithuania in part two. Uh, part three will be uh, Lithuania within the Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth when it became a, a great power. Mm. Uh, and then the period of uh, sort of the 19th century through to its first kind of independence as Lithuania as a nation state yeah. as opposed to a kingdom. Uh, and then uh, the Soviet occupation and then finally Lithuania since its liberation. So uh, it, uh, those are you know, about four more episodes and, and hopefully we'll have a, a nice six-part series. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, our Lithuanians and wherever else, um, yeah, can join us on our journey. Mm. This week, you also talked about Navalny, right? Alexei Navalny, Alexei yeah. Navalny. And mm. he has returned to Russia. And as soon as he landed in Russia, he was arrested. <laughs> yeah, so they diverted the entire plane for technical issues. And they landed in another he, airport. Yeah. Well, he had actually a lot of supporters, right, waiting for him at the airport because yeah. he encouraged to come and be like, welcome me. But, yeah, the Russian government, like, yeah, technical issues, David Klein then got arrested, which is a quite amazing, like, of something that was so obscure. Um, yeah. So yeah. last week there were protests in 60 Russian cities mm. in support of Alexei Navalny. Uh, the largest such protests... Uh, since Putin has been in power, I think. And there is one image which we can even put up in the weekend review. There's one image we do put up. Yeah. It's the uh, protest that took place in Yakutsk, in the far north of, like, eastern Siberia, mm-hmm. uh, in minus 50 weather. Um, and mm-hmm. you see these people in minus 50, this blizzard, out protesting mm. for Alexei Navalny. That's how passionate and committed people are. There was also a video that went viral in the West. Um, uh, this this teenage girl uh, pretending to be American, like so, teaching people on TikTok oh, uh, yeah. how how to convince yourself, uh, convince like authorities that if you get arrested, you're an American and therefore you should be let go. And it was it was so it was so funny. It was like yeah, I'm American, and I had like you're violating my human rights. And I'm like, I'm going to call my lawyer. <laughs> it, was just, it was really classic. Yeah. So people were at least having a bit of fun with it, which was good. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know how many, support, I mean, how many supporters he has. How many supporters does Putin actually have? Well, it's hard to say, right? Because, I mean, officially you would say, oh, you know, 80% or something. But unofficially, yeah. uh, it's got to be significantly less than that. Uh, I mean... Over 2,000 people were arrested in these protests. So 60 mm. cities had protests. And we're not talking, you know, 2,000 people turning out. 2,000 people were arrested, um, many hundreds of thousands of people across the country protesting. Mm. And I think that Putin has a number of problems. He's been there for, for too long, number one. Number two, he hasn't really created a clear succession pattern. So Originally, he was sort of toying with it with Medvedev and, and seemed to have a, a power transition in place, but that seems to have gone by the wayside. Yeah. Uh, so it's unclear how he anticipates exiting his position. How uh, was he even, how did he get there in the first place? Well, so oh. Russia, you can be divided into four different power centers. You've got the security uh, like leadership, so the the FSB former KGB types, which Putin is the the figurative lead. Mm. Uh, you've got the church, which has been rehabilitated since the fall of the um, Soviet Union and uh, holds itself up as the custodian of Russian identity. So yeah. even though um, only a small number of Russians go to church every Sunday, the overwhelming majority of Russians consider the Orthodox faith to be the custodians of Russianness, right? So they have a lot of social clout and they have a lot of um, clout when it particularly comes to social laws, so the gay laws and that things, things like that. Uh, And then you have 
the mafia, which has a sort of accord with the government. So uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you had the period of crony capitalism under um, Yeltsin, and uh, the whole country turned into a sort of a, a criminal state. So huge amounts of drugs from Afghanistan, mm. um, human trafficking, weapons, uh, military equipment, uh, animal trafficking, like all of this has been gone absolutely gangbusters throughout the 90s. And, uh, and the mafia kind of in allegiance with the government and with the church, uh, I've kind of agreed to operate beyond Russia's borders and to, to yeah. cooperate with the Russian government. So they are now their own sort of faction, if you like. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the oligarchs, the the Gazproms, the, uh, the those that are running massive energy companies. Uh, they uh, because you know, uh, Mitt Romney, who, who I'm not a fan of, but famously once labelled Russia uh, a gas station masquerading as a country. Now that's not true. Uh, but it is certainly the case that Russia is heavily dependent on energy, on oil, on gas, mm. um, and thus uh, the, those that run those industries are enormously powerful, which uh, Dmitry Medvedev was, um, you know, the figurative head. Mm. So those four interest groups effectively yeah. run the country, and Putin became the sort of guy who could keep it all together. Um, yeah. So... He has done a good job in the sense of being able to maintain a sense of Russian unity. And the Russian mentality is to rely on a strong centralized leader. So people who want Russia to become a democracy like the West, uh, it, it, it can go in that direction, but uh, it will always, I think, maintain a certain Russian characteristic because mm -hmm. uh, Russians have a deep anxiety about um, having a government that isn't super strong, right? They yeah. they 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 kind of, as a rule. Uh, I mean, not speaking for every Russian here, but um, as a rule, most Russians uh, do like the sense of having a strong leadership, um, mm -hmm. being able to unite what is a huge expanse of territory. Yeah. Uh, so Putin, in that sense, did a reasonably good job at that. And in the context of the Russian political system. He's kind of a centrist. So people look at Putin as being this wild nationalist radical. But in the context of Russia, there are people far to the right of Putin. There are, there, there are entire political parties dedicated to nuking Chechnya, right? Like there, there are people who are much more rapidly nationalistic than Putin. Yeah. Uh, and Putin is kind of has been a sensible voice in that. But he's been there too long. Like there is too much corruption. There's too much, um, you know, people who are invested in, in the current status quo, getting rich off, you know, in totally illegitimate ways. There's Navalny's uh, criticism of, of Putin and this massive palatial palace mm. that exists on the Black Sea that allegedly belongs to Vladimir Putin, something he denies. And uh, and it's not clear where the country is getting better. You've got the, the country... Um, horribly suffering from the pandemic. Yeah. You've got collapsing oil prices that have sent the country to near bankruptcy. Uh, it's, it's not clear how Russia is going to improve. And uh, one thing that people are getting very upset about is the fact that there's no government transition, no government accountability mm. uh, necessary to drive positive change. So part of the support for Navalny comes from the fact of who he is, his moral authority, the fact that he was poisoned, yeah. um, uh, you know, all the, the the perception that he's an opposition figure who's being persecuted by the government, and of course his his unrivaled courage in coming back to Russia. But a lot of the support is driven simply by the fact that Russia is doing really badly right now. Mm. That, that there are so many people that are suffering uh, I mean, economically. They might not necessarily like support Navalny, but. They're going to support the other person out there, sorry. Yeah, they're, they're, they're against Putin. They want to see a change, and Navalny represents change. Uh, so they will come out and support him because yeah. he at least seems to be indicative of democracy. Now, the, the other thing that I find impressive about Alexei Navalny is that one of the great risks of uh, opposition leadership mm -hmm. is they talk tough on democracy when they're out of power. This is something Obama also observed, and he was right about this, that a lot of people say, oh, we want democratic reform, we want liberalisation, we want to have freedom of speech, freedom of association. 
uh, and uh, when they get into power, they're like, yeah, those things aren't so important anymore. Um, and we certainly saw that with uh, Erdogan of Turkey. I think he's the poster yeah. child of that. When he was out of power, he he seemed to be like the religious moderate, being like, look, we just want to make it a level playing field. We want to allow women to come to university and things like that because you know at the moment they can't go into a government building with a, with a headscarf. Um, so all of this sort of stuff that seemed really yeah religious but also modern, um, he seemed like a real positive reformer. Yeah. And then when he got into power, he's become one of the worst autocrats uh, in the world today. Uh, Did power and- just corrupt their minds, or they just forget, or was it just awful like? It's actually Sorry. a wonderful question. What you've asked there, I think, is a really powerful... Uh, no, because I think it matters, the answer to that question. Is it is it because they have become corrupted when they're in power, but genuinely believed what they were saying yeah. when they were out of power? Or were they cynically manipulating their audience so they could gain power and then abuse it in the way that they had always intended. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a um, it's a really powerful question, and I think because it it leads to different structures of of response. Like if you wanted to guard against that, mm-hmm. uh, then you could create systems and processes and institutions um, to manage that problem. Mm-hmm. But it really does depend on you know, their intentions and where at the point of the process people become corrupted. Uh, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> okay. But I think it's an important philosophical point. I, 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 it's worth exploring. Uh, but in the case of Alexei Navalny, um, his tweets that I, that I read out um, in the previous episode, mm-hmm. which criticised the US uh, tech giant uh, monopolies for mm-hmm. censoring the President of the United States... He had no personal benefit to gain from doing that. This is an important thing to remember, that by this stage, Trump had been elected out of office. Yeah. The next administration was coming in, and, and the next administration had no incentive to associate their victory with tech giant censorship. It, like, it, it delegitimizes Biden's presidency if, you, if, you, he that, yeah. if, he, if he acknowledges the fact that the tech giants had suppressed all stories about Hunter Biden's corruption and, and his uh, personal you know, wealth from China and Ukraine and, and Russia um, mm-hmm. in the lead up to the election. If, if it's perceived that uh, the deplatforming of the president of the United States um, was contributing to Biden's election, well, mm-hmm. all of that delegitimizes the Biden presidency. So Navalny put out a series of, of tweets um, you know, in a long list that he had no personal benefit to be gained from doing that. Like yeah. it was risky to do that because he gets a lot of support from the United States, United States government. He wouldn't want to piss off the new president. Uh, and thus it was dangerous to put that out in a way. But that must, you know, to my mind, reflect his deep personal conviction. And and the um, story that he gave about what had happened to him in Russia, the way the Russian government talks about him versus uh, its mirrored parallels with what Twitter and Facebook were doing were chilling. Yeah, and yeah, I think so I'm many f- people send death threats all the time to each other and they never get kicked off. Never, ever. And the, I mean, as long as you send the death threats on the right side of the political spectrum, right? Like if you if you are, you know, pro-Silicon Valley, pro-extreme radical left agenda, intersectionality, critical race theory, all of that stuff, then nothing bad will happen to you. But if you, um, you know, dare say that sex is binary, um, as has been the case for all living complex organisms for billions of years, then yes, you can get deplatformed for saying that. Um and, and without even necessarily directing it to a particular individual. So, it, yeah, it's, it's, these rules are, are not universal. They're not fairly applied. There was a comment, actually, that said, you know, everybody signs up to these terms and conditions when they're on these platforms. And so they have the right, and I can't argument, to kick them off if they don't align these terms and conditions. But I guess the an argument is that is, well, they're not applied consistently. That's that's one argument against. So there's a bunch of things you can say that. Number one, definitely not applied consistently. Like there's no fairness. Uh, they say they're about promoting free exchange of ideas, but only one set of ideas gets censored and deplatformed. So it's not like everybody who violates these conditions is treated the same. Mm. Number two, these conditions change 
day to day. So I signed up to Twitter like many years ago when the terms of service was different. Now, if I was being treated under the original terms of service when I signed up, fair enough, right? But these cha- these terms of service get changed retrospectively. Yeah. They get applied arbitrarily. There is no oversight or accountability. So if it's about the terms and conditions, then you should have recourse as a private person to appeal to some third body uh, to apply these terms and conditions appropriately. But they're not. And we, we actually saw that wonderfully in one case with Patreon where Patreon started deplatforming some creators and the people who subscribed to those creators who could no longer donate to those creators took Patreon to court in California uh, and Patreon got obliterated because of it. So Mm -hmm. um, uh, because of the terms and conditions, because they did actually have recourse in that specific case and Patreon tried very, very hard to backtrack and change its terms of service to, to avoid that accountability. So that was one, one area where the system actually worked. But the other, and I think bigger point about the terms and conditions, the, the, uh, the social media tech giants claim carrier protection. Yeah. Which means that if I tweet something or you tweet something mm. and it's wrong, it's, it's xenophobic, it, it causes harm, nobody can sue Twitter. Mm. right they can come to us and say you publish that material you're responsible for those words Mm. but twitter will say we're just a carrier service we're not responsible for what individuals put out there it's the same is true if you have your telephone service okay your telephone provider doesn't monitor everybody's calls and cut you off if you're planning some criminal activity they just connect people they are a neutral platform provider and that's what twitter facebook and these other tech giants claim to be in order to avoid personal accountability now if you are a publisher it's a different story you have editorial control so if you are the new york times the washington post or some other media outlet they can decide whether to publish or not publish a story give platform to individual voices or not or to editorialize articles that are in fact released they have that total control Equally, they are liable for everything that they do publish Mm. on their platform. So what these tech giants are trying to do is claim all the benefits of being a carrier, that is no direct liability, but all of the power of being a publisher, deciding what is and isn't said and editorialized and shared with on their platform. They are basically becoming a telecommunications network that does control who you can speak to on the phone. That's the mentality. And then we're seeing that spread to other real world areas as well. So financial transactions, MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, um, people are getting their bank accounts frozen because of the things that they say online. Not terrorist activities, not calls to violence, just political viewpoints that the leaders of these organizations do not like. Now, are we willing as a society to legitimately say, oh, yes, your bank is a private platform and if they want to freeze all the money you put in there and tell you that you can only get your money out if you subscribe to particular you know, socio-political beliefs yeah. um, or you can only buy groceries from the store in a cashless society if you subscribe to those beliefs. Uh, oh, they're a private company. They can do what they like. No, we are a society uh, where certain companies have been accorded disproportionate levels of power over our social uh, ways of managing the complex modern world. And you can really deperson someone through extraordinary persecution Mm. based on ideological and political beliefs is something that we as a society must wholeheartedly reject. And uh, as I've said many times to the people on the left who sit there cheering away at the tech censorship that we're seeing uh, from Twitter and Facebook, look, you may expect the crocodile to eat you last, but it will eat you. These tech giants are not going to give up the power mm. when it's on the other foot. Now that Biden's president and and you know all the lefties are ascendant, um, do you really expect Google and Facebook and Twitter to go back meekly to their previous role of just being an open platform for free and fair discussion? Hell no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so what we're seri- seeing is people cheerleading the destruction of our liberal democracy. And that's just, you guys are the baddies, okay? <laughs> it's kind of interesting, though. Like, this probably wouldn't... I don't know. 
I don't know whether this would happen, but like the commodity rap used to be, we had these platforms, New York Post or yeah, mm-hmm. telephones, and you'd pay for that service. You'd actually pay to sign up, use the service. And because you are the customer in terms of like money exchange, like I think companies felt more responsible to make sure they deliver the service at a high quality, like, you know, and ensure that you get that service, what you intend to pay for. But because Facebook and these social media giants are all pa- your, it's free to join these platforms and it's not necessarily your money, but it's your attention and it's all your data <laughs> that you're giving up essentially. And that is why they feel, that's why there's such a gray zone, right? Of accountability of like, okay, to what extent can they use this? <laughs> Um, and monopolize and yeah take advantage situation it that's a really good point i like it it's there there is a different relationship uh between you and social media tech giants and you and your internet service provider for example uh, in that you do pay money direct for various services and your relationship is as a, a customer uh, whereas you're right that Twitter and Facebook and things like that, they, they see you as their property and, and they're a property that they're willing to exchange and deal with as they wish with others and advertisers and, and groups of, you know, aligned with their own ideology. But when you say it like that, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, having said that, I think it is bleeding out anyway because, like, as yeah. I said, we've got the, the um, financial transactions, we've got healthcare providers, We've got insurance companies. So people with whom you do have a direct relationship, they're starting to behave the same way as well. Um, we see MailChimp. Uh, so we have an e-newsletter, which I'm I'm going to transition from MailChimp when, when I get the chance. Um, they put updated their terms of service saying that if, if anyone publishes anything uh, within their own networks mm. that they consider entirely at their own discretion to be misleading or, or confusing for people was their kind of dubious words, they had a, the right to shut down the MailChimp. Now, this is not like broadcasting. This is people who have specifically signed up to join the e-newsletter, mm. join our e-newsletter as well. It's free once a week. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the uh, between people who have agreed with the, the provider to have that direct communication exchange, much more like a telephone than even a broadcaster, okay? Yeah. Uh, And even in that instance, Mm. in which MailChimp is presuming itself to be a complete service, a postal service, effectively, just through electronic means, they're saying, look, we can open your mail, and if we don't like the content, for whatever reason, Mm. we will shut down that, thing and you won't be able to communicate at all with the people that have agreed to receive your content. Uh, we're, we're, we're in dark times in this space and what we do need is a is a reckoning. Uh, we do need all carriers to lose their Section 230 protections so they're treated like publishers or carriers. They have to either act as either or. There's no blurring of those lines. Yeah. There needs to be a recognition that the major tech giants control the public square and thus it's a public good um, and thus... You know, they don't have total control over everything that happens in their platforms because it's something that everybody relies on and therefore it is bigger than just the oligarch uh, tech giants. And I hold out some hope. That is their the biggest fear of them, like, deplatforming people is so they don't get sued? I don't know. What's their biggest fear? No, I, I think it's I think it's getting drunk on power. Oh, Mate, okay. There, there are... There's always been calls to say you've got to tackle misinformation online and the radicalisation, but... You know, what people are learning is that when people are radicalised, when people are a danger to others, um, well, if you de-platform them, they go to other providers that aren't as visible. Like all the all these security agencies that were trying to track, you know, supremacists and, and Antifa and various other, like, you know, radical, mm. violent groups, uh, they had the benefit of being able to track all these people online on Facebook, on on Twitter, and all these yeah. things. Because they would just go out and they would tell everybody who they were and what they were up to. Well, if, if you deplatform them, uh, then they get driven into the shadows and they go without alternate providers and private networks and and remote servers mm. and all this sort of stuff. 
where they, they can no longer be observed. They can no longer keep an eye on what's going on. So there's a real drawback, um, not just to... So there's more danger to society. Yeah, you, you, are, you are encouraging these groups to become more clandestine in their, in their approach. Yeah. Uh, but it's more than that. I think that uh, most of these tech giants, yes, they get responses to... Like, there are some real events, okay? And, I, and like, I want to be as generous to that that one possible mythical tech giant executive out there that is trying to do the right thing and thinks that they're doing the best they can. Mm. And that would be like, you see what happened with the Wellington shooting, right? Where 50 people were gunned down in a mosque, broadcast live on Facebook, Jacinda Ardern having to deal with this horrible crisis that happened in New Zealand. Mm. And people go, look, you've got to do something about that. Like you can't just have people shooting people and broadcasting it online, right? Yeah. I get that. Right. And I can understand if I was a government leader and I'm like, look, we can't allow this to happen again. Yeah. You gotta do something. Then Facebook executives are gonna sit there and be like, Well, that means we need more control, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the that's the only possible thing. If you want us to control what people broadcast on mm-hmm. thing, that we need the power to intervene and censor people to prevent that sort of thing from happening. If you don't yeah. give us that power, we can't act. Okay. Yeah. So there is a there is a space where it becomes complicated, okay? Mm. But the cost to society for going down that path, for relinquishing your control as a government to and outsourcing that to an unelected multinational conglomerate mm-hmm. is the obliteration of your liberal democracy. And I'm not overstating that. Uh, it, it, if you give all communication power in the information age to a small hand group full of people who wish to apply their morality uh, as if they are some kind of colossus god bestriding the earth, uh, then they're going to exercise that power. And if you outsource your own, you know, that's why we have governments. That's why we have regulators. That's why we have these sorts of standards. Uh, and if the cost of that is occasionally we see some kind of atrocity get broadcast. Do we need like an equivalent to like the ABC, but for social media? No, I think no. we need to get rid of the ABC. I, I've, I've actually become firmer on the ABC. Oh, okay. I, originally, I thought, no, we just need to reform it a bit. Um, but now, I, I know you're, you're more than welcome to disagree with me on this, but I think that the ABC has passed its use by date and should become a private subscription service. I think we need to retain the... Um, so for, for those that don't understand what we're talking about, the so, ABC is the Australian Broadcasting yeah. Corporation. Think of the BBC in the UK. Yeah. It's a public broadcaster, in our case, funded by um, taxpayers through normal consolidated revenue. So the government just allocates money to the BBC and they, they make, I don't know, billion, billion and a half a year to, to run all their shows. Uh, now, I think regional broadcasting is definitely like you need the ABC for that because it's not commercially viable. Um, Regional stories, uh, you know, local news, all of that sort of stuff needs to be funded through uh, the taxpayer to provide that service to regional Australia. So I think ABC regional should be preserved. Uh, But in terms of the ABC as we understand it in the major urban centres, no, yeah. turn that into a private subscription service, sell it off completely, allow people to make their own decision mm-hmm. and allow the ABC to compete with other media outlets, um, you know, for, for subscribers the same way that, that everybody else does. Do you um, find it has an unfair advantage and well, poor uh, journalism? Unquestionably, unquestionably. And I don't know how you make the argument to the other side that uh, the, the ABC is got inroads into every domain it has its own podcast it has its own you know stores um mm. enormous advantage it, it it can't fail it gets taxpayer money that taxpayers themselves don't decide mm. uh and driving out all other competition i mean if you have a if you have a model that really requires innovation you need to adapt and appeal to a certain audience to get money and subscribers and things like that then you're going to become better and better, whereas the ABC doesn't need to do any of that. Uh, and it's what it considers to be editorial in- independence is really advocacy for the hard left. Like it, all its news stories, from what I can see, are advocating for left-wing causes. Uh, it completely denigrates um, 
you know, anything sort of mainstream. It doesn't put two sides to the story like it claims to. Uh, and thus, it's you're really getting from the ABC um, an ideological one-sided weapon. Now, that's fine. That's absolutely fine as a private service. Um, allow it to run as a private service. And then those people that subscribe to those views can mm -hmm. pay for it. And those people that don't, don't have to have it shoved down their throats every day. I know, um, but the only reason, like, I vouch for the ABC or, like, some sort of government-funded, like, yeah, taxpayer-funded mm -hmm. entity is because, yeah, more and more news outlets are having to rely on subscription. Not everyone can afford that, okay? And mm. then you have to turn to Facebook and, like, how better is Facebook? <laughs> Well, that's that. why you should subscribe to Dangerous Policy, <laughs> where you will get two sides of the story. So our e-newsletter uh, has complete news headlines that are totally devoid of, of uh, opinion. Uh, of course, the YouTube channel is me giving very strong opinions, the things of my personal belief. Uh, but... Uh, Nevertheless, um, you know, Dangerous Policy aims to be a credible service and that our biases are at least on the table. Yeah, right? Like, uh, you know, if you watch our channel and I encourage people of different political persuasions to, to watch our content, mm -hmm. knowing that they're going to get someone who is a centrist, who believes in free speech, um, you know, constitutional traditions. So those sorts of things that are on the right, but also on the left spectrum. You know, I like, you know, um, collective... Uh, taxation, progressive taxation, compulsory superannuation, uh, universal healthcare, universal access to education, how we can pragmatically solve problems. Mm. I personally think that choices, uh, people should have as much personal choice as possible. So that's a, obviously a conservative right-wing position. Um, but then also that those choices should be as easy for people as possible. We shouldn't just assume that everybody has perfect knowledge about everything yeah. and therefore they might need to make um, decisions based on expert advice. They might need to make decisions based on what everybody else is doing, um, and therefore making those things as easy as possible. I, you know, you will save your for your retirement, for example. It's not just a personal choice. Everybody needs to do it. That sort of stuff, um, which because I think it's it's good for the whole well being of society. So uh, that's my, you know, I have all these opinions, but at least in dangerous policy, you know where I stand on this stuff. Uh, whereas in the ABC. And this is the hypocrisy of it. The ABC purports to be yeah. an unbiased, objective news service, but in fact, it is completely one side, masquerading as something that it isn't. And that's something I find personally quite offensive. Uh, anyway, so we have running out of time fast, unfortunately, for this week in review. Yes. Uh, uh, Charlene has some place to be. She showed up. Oh my God. So it's Australia Day yesterday. We didn't talk about that today. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss it later. Uh, Australia Day is a great national holiday uh, and I like normal Australian tradition, barbecue, pool, spa, drinking, lots of alcohol. I was drinking too. Charlene showed up at seven o'clock today to do this and I stayed in bed uh, until uh, I could sober up a bit. Um, so uh, as a consequence of that, we have compressed time. So I apologize for that. But thank you very much for tuning in for this week in review. Yes, definitely. Uh, definitely some interesting thoughts. If you have any other questions and comments, please leave them down below. I mean, I like to wake up early and have a productive day because, you know, we're committed. Yeah, to that's it. Committed. <laughs> committed. So can't wait to nap. <laughs> but, yeah, otherwise, yeah, that's everything. Mm. All right. Good luck, everybody. We'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next time. Mm.